the people who really become exceptional are focused on the details, on the small stuff, and something that we're trained not to think about. We're trained to think at the big picture and look at the big stuff and don't sweat the small stuff. And it's actually the small stuff that makes all the difference. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Joining us today is Dr. Kumar Mehta. He's been at the forefront of exceptional performance, research, innovation, and data analytics for over 30 years. He founded Bridges Insight, which is a think tank committed to researching sustained personal and organizational excellence. So we're really excited to have him on the show today. Kumar's research areas include the science of exceptional performance and understanding why some people become truly exceptional and elite and others just don't. He's a best-selling author, performance consultant, speaker on excellence, and he's authored two books, which we'll dig in and talk about today. So today we cover how to maximize your potential through maximizing your strengths. We'll talk about micro-excellence in adults and our children. We'd like to welcome Dr. Kumar Mehta to Forging Metal. Kumar, your work on excellence, it focuses on how each of us, right, everyday people can become our best in our particular fields. And I know that you do that by by pointing people to the traits that world-class athletes use or performers or even like the Elon Musks of the world and what, what traits they tap into to find their excellence. So can you tell us what you mean? Like, how does this work? How do we take what we learn from world-class athletes? and business people and apply it to ourselves, like in our daily lives? So when I was researching what it takes for someone to become exceptional, to really become the best in their field, whatever it may be, it could be physics, it could be basketball, it could be anything. Everyone, every single person who's kind of reached the top of their pyramid has their own story. You know, Michael Jordan is going to have a fantastic story that we're all going to listen to. And as is, you know, any any Nobel laureate or anybody, they're just going to have their story. And so what I thought that the best way to understand if you want to become exceptional at something, why don't we listen to a hundred stories and look at all the common elements? And so one of the things I did was I started uh, the research for my book with a series of interviews with Nobel laureates, Olympic athletes, some world-class athletes, business leaders, musicians from you know different symphonies around the world, people who had really differentiated themselves. And, and I had you know, many in-depth conversations and I tried to call out and understand, okay, so what are the commonalities? And that is uh, what I would say that, okay, your best bet if you want to become exceptional, you know, here are the common elements across every journey to the top. This is, this is interesting to me, Kumar. So when I look at somebody like, I think you used the, the, the actual phrase, the, we're talking about the top 1% of the 1%. I mean, when we look at a Michael Jordan or we look at an Elon Musk, they're so in the stratosphere for most of us 
I'll put, you know, normal people, I'll put it in air quotes. Uh, and we look at that and we go, there's, I have nothing in common with these people. Yeah. How, what, what can I learn from them? And, and are you telling us that there actually are things that we can learn from those very elite performers? Like, do they yeah. have tools that we could actually tap into and us use like Ron and I, us mere mortals, right? So, so basically what they have done, Elon Musk or Michael Jordan or any of these names that you mentioned, they have maximized their potential. They've mm. done the most with what they have. And all of us can do that. Now, maybe the outcome of me doing that is not going to be an Elon Musk or a Michael Jordan. But when I fulfill my potential and maximize my physical, mental, social potential, I will be exceptional because that's all I can do. All I can do is make the best of what I have. And in some cases, it may win me a gold medal uh, or it may win me, make me Tiger Woods. In some cases, I, I may not even make it to my club championship. Becoming exceptional, everyone is different. So, you know, all we can do is you know, do the best for ourselves. All right. So if I sum this up, there's things we can learn from Michael Jordan, but we shouldn't compare ourselves to Michael Jordan, right? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. You, all you can do is compare yourself to your potential. Okay. If, if, I was, if, if somebody put a basketball in my lap and I put in 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 hours, they had all the grit in the world, all the resilience, all the stuff that you're talking about, I am never going to be Michael Jordan. Agreed. I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'll try, but I don't know if I'll get there either. Kamari, you, when you're working with clients and you're coaching people to find their, their excellence, I know you have a uh, standardized approach. I think you call it the Epic program. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that works? Yeah. So basically Epic is an acronym. And the first thing you do is you evaluate. And so I have, and what I've written in my book, there are these seven elements of excellence, so to speak. And, and so, you know, I evaluate people along those. And basically, it's just understanding where you're strong and where you're not. If, if you want to become exceptional, if you want to become a world-class golfer, world-class tennis player, or whatever, there are certain uh, conditions or certain qualities you need to have. So that's the evaluation phase. But after you evaluate, you plan. You know, you develop a personalized plan for each individual based on specifically, you know, where they are, what areas they need to show up. And then there's the implementation. You can actually go out and do it. And then finally, you kind of have routine check-ins, which happen periodically. So that is the methodology, the evaluate, plan, implement, and, and check the EPIC uh, methodology for helping someone understand how they can actually maximize their potential. You mentioned the seven critical elements of sustained excellence. And one of the things that kind of jumped out at me when I was, when I was looking at that list is the the term micro excellence can you tell us a little bit about uh, micro excellence and what is that and why is that important sure so one of the things i learned was that that the people who really become exceptional are focused on the details on the small stuff and something that we're trained not to think about we're trained to think at the big picture and look at the big stuff and don't sweat the small stuff and it's actually the small stuff that makes all the difference. One, one person, one example is a baseball player, a very successful major league baseball player was kind of going back to his old days when he was in the minor leagues. And he told me that they used to have these drills where the only drills were to catch a ball when you're off balance and throw it while you're off balance. Something that you never really do and something that barely comes into play. And he said that, you know, he take those drills seriously. 
and there were a lot of other people who never quite made it. They just said, hey, I'm a hitter. You know, this is what they're paying me for. This is all I want to practice. And I want to really show how good I am at, at my big thing. And it's the guys who focused on the little things are the, are the folks that actually made it. And this is true across every field. It's always the focus on the little, little things. And it's something that I, I kind of use the term micro-excellence to, to give that a name and give that a meaning because otherwise we just tend not to focus on the stuff that really matters. And becoming exceptional is the cumulative effect of thousands of tiny little things. It's never a few big things. Oh, so interesting. And it makes me think, I know you're a big believer and and so are we in honing our current strengths and strengths performance. And you talk about a lot. In fact, you, you have a Forbes article that came out uh, earlier this month where you were actually telling a story around former NFL player Jordan Babineau. And I love his story. He talk about perseverance, but you, you, you talk about how we need to find our niche as well. And we need to dominate that area rather than trying to be really good in a lot of areas. So I love the combination of micro excellence and also honing our current strengths. Can you talk about how the two kind of work together? Yeah. And this applies to every field, not just the NFL uh, or the baseball example find a small area and become really, really good at it if you want to really stand out. It's hard to find a big area and stand out in a big area, but it's when you stand out in a small area, you know, there were, there were no computers. You know, what, what Bill Gates did with a programming tool back in the 1970s, it, it was nothing. There were maybe a handful of people interested in it. It was a small area, but he excelled at it. And, and if there's a, a lesson for people who want to become exceptional in, in whatever it is they do, find your niche, find your thing, but then you become so good at it that you are truly the best. What, what is your niche? What is your one, uh, what is one of your top strengths? I'm curious. My niche, my top strength is the ability to take a topic, really get deep into it, understand it, and, and, then, and then communicate like I have with this book. My previous book was a completely different topic. It was on innovation. It was a corporate book. And I did a very similar thing. I dug deep into innovation to really understand what makes innovation happen. Uh, and, and I've done that throughout my career uh, as a researcher and uh, just as a business professional, try to find something and, and just really latch onto it for a while. That'd be me for a while until I find something else I want to do. <laughs> I, my, I, I have a lot of different interests. Uh, so let's, let's talk about it. I mean, what you're talking about here is this idea of, should we be a generalist or a specialist? And, and, you know, I've always kind of gravitated toward your answer of, you know, get, get deep into, you know, find something and really focus on it and go deep. Uh, but I've been hearing some, some pushback in that, you know, lately uh, of people saying that we should be generalists. I'm not, I'm not ready to get on that bandwagon yet, but one thing that I do wonder about and i know you you have a forbes article about raising resilient kids and both tara and i work with you know university students and sometimes they ask me hey ron should i be more of a generalist early in my career and then focus later or should i start off my career being you know finding something and specializing in that what are your thoughts on that kumar should should what, what would your advice be to them so this is kind of a contentious topic, and I think there are people from both sides of the camp. In my research, at least, what I've found is that you become good 
by becoming good, by putting the hours in, by spending the time, by really honing your skills. The only way you become good at something, I mean, when someone says you're good at something, when you're the Michael Jordan of something, I mean, what did Michael Jordan have that others didn't have? He had a set of skills. He had developed them to a certain set of, to a certain level that other people had not. And the same with anyone, with, with, with a physicist or with, with an economist or with a, with a lawyer or in any profession, the best are the people who have the, have the most comprehensive and the most well-defined set of skills. And skill development takes time. Skill development requires volume of effort. But when you do something early, you become better at it. And you do something a little, you know, you become better at it. And, and the example I think I used in one of the articles was Andre Agassi. He started playing tennis when he was four years old. By the time he was 17, he was competing against people who were 10 or 15 years older than him, but he was able to keep up because he had the same volume. So anyway, to make a long story short, uh, I think that building skills is what makes you exceptional and that takes time. And the earlier you start, the better you become. So that's, that's kind of uh, where, where I lean. Well, let's, let's talk about some of those skills. Cause I, I know I read, I read that you actually pushed your kids to go out and seek quantitative educations so that they could excel, you know, in this ever growing digital world that we're, we're living in, but have you changed those, your thoughts on sure. how important a quantitative education is? And if so, to what? So I actually didn't push them to to focus on quantitative skills. They they showed an aptitude towards it, and I encouraged them to develop it. And and I and I certainly thought it was it was fine. Now and and at the time when my, my kids are, uh, are are adults now, but when they were when they were young, I, I I was a quantitative guy, and I thought, okay, you know, you get quantitative skills, you're always going to you know do well. Now we're at the point where I have no idea, and even then I, I just didn't know better. But now I don't know what what the skills uh, are going to be required for the next twenty or thirty years. You know, third, you know, there are some people saying that you know machines are going to do everything that we do, and some other people are saying no, that's not true. You you can't predict what skills you're going to need, what functional skills. What you, so what you can work on are the skills what I what I call and something I'm intimately involved with are social and emotional skills, the skills that allow you to manage your emotions or allow you to interact with people because those are the things that are never going to change. I could not agree more, and I'm glad you said that because you know I don't like the word soft skills that just doesn't 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 sit with me well. But I like that social the social and emotional skills. I, I know they're teaching a lot of of younger folks mm-hmm. those now and. Quite honestly, I think that is, that's what leadership is in my view. You know, relationships are not going away. I don't care if artificial intelligence takes over all of our jobs. We still have to interact with people. And so I think managing those those relationships is, is where I think we, that that's where you're going to set yourself apart. That's my, that's my belief. It sounds like we're, we're on the same page there. I I do want to say that at, at whatever you do, you also need to develop functional skills because otherwise you, you know, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. But when you think 30 years from now, you just don't know what functional. Sure. Sure. That, that's a fair point. And I'm glad you brought that up. And, and one of the things that I've heard is the kids that are, in, you know, in elementary school now, they don't know what skills they're going to need to be successful. And, you know, when they get out of school, so you're exactly right. It's changing so quickly. Let's, while we're on this topic, let's, let's dig into a little bit of your 
background. You know, Kumar, as as Tara and I were doing research for you as we we're getting prepared for this this interview, if I were to look at your early career and then look at what you're doing now, I don't even I, I don't I wouldn't even be able to connect those dots. And so I'm kind of curious how you got to be, you know, with, with your background, how did you, how did you come to be who you are now? <laughs> uh, it's a very atypical career. So my education was in pharmaceuticals and I got a PhD in pharmaceutical socioeconomics. And, uh, and I was in Philadelphia in the pharmaceutical world. And then my wife was from Seattle. And so my first career switch, so to speak, was giving up everything I'd studied for, for years, my whole life and what I thought I'd be doing because my family was here and my wife's family was here in Seattle and I came here. Seattle isn't a hotbed of the pharmaceutical industry. It is a little bit, but, but not like the East Coast. And there was this little but growing company called Microsoft that, that interviewed me and offered me a job. And so that was my first pivot, so to speak, where I just completely did something brand new. I knew nothing about technology. I spent 14 years at, at Microsoft. My next switch was becoming an entrepreneur. And I came across some other individuals and we decided to build this company that, that focused on providing data analytics and, and providing some market research technologies. And so I was the CEO of that company and we built that and grew that and scaled that. And then one of our divisions we sold and after that, I kind of thought that, okay, I've done the CEO thing for about nine or 10 years. I've been at a big company at Microsoft, you know, I want to do something different. And one of the things I had in my mind is that I wanted to impact lives in a positive fashion. And I had no idea what that meant. You know, I, I wasn't running a big foundation or I wasn't an elected official where I had direct impact. So I really had to think hard about, okay, what does that even mean? And I thought that the only thing that's changed our lives positively is innovation, whether it's new medicine, new technology, new travel, you know, just the new things from the beginning of time that's kind of changed our life. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to study innovation, not to become a consultant or sell an innovation service, but to really understand how can we accelerate the rate of innovation in everything. And so I started researching innovation. I really uh, went deep into it. I started studying how things were created from, from the beginning of time, from the invention of the wheel to all the stuff we use today, like robotic surgery and smartphones and everything. And, and I came across a set of common elements that were present in every innovation story. And that led to my first book, The Innovation Biome, that I released about three or four years ago. And that book kind of, all of a sudden, now I'm an author. And, and I never thought of myself as an author, but I started getting invited to go speak at conferences. And this is back when we could even travel to conferences. And I started doing that. And after doing that for a few years, I, I kind of thought that, okay, what is it that makes certain people so special? What, what is it about certain people that just makes them stand out from everyone else? And I went on a very similar research approach to understand, and I think we talked about this a little bit already, to understand how people become exceptional. And I did the same thing. I studied a cross-section of people in a variety of fields to really get at what those common elements are. And that resulted in my second book that was released a, a couple of months ago called The Exceptionals. And so that's my journey and, and the reasons I kept making those changes. But there's nothing kind of, nothing linear about it. There was uh, nothing that that kind of said, okay, stay with, stay with this. I mean, if, 
if that was the case, I would have been somehow uh, related to pharmaceuticals today. Well, I'm a big fan of the nonlinear experiences that kind of culminate to come together to become a coach and a, a public speaker and then to become an author the way you have. So we commend you on that. that. Let's talk about The Exceptionals, which is titled The Exceptionals, How the Best Become the Best and How You Can Too. Kumara, I'm curious, who do you think your ideal reader is for this book? It's anyone who wants to make the best of themselves and also parents, because becoming exceptional in many, of course, while we can all become exceptional at any age, and I'm trying to do that at at my old age, I think if you really want to become exceptional at something, you've got to start early. And we talked a little bit about this. It's it's hard, you know, you, you don't come out with a business school degree and say, okay, I want to become Michael Jordan. It's just too late. And so, you know, parents who, who want to encourage their kids and at least give them the tools to let them go in the direction or let them pursue whatever it is they want to pursue. So I think those are the two sets of people. Let's, uh, let's, let's go to, you know, I, I read a couple of your blog posts as I was doing the research. And one of the things that comes out that stands out is hard work is essential to excellence. I think we all three would probably agree to that. But we also know a lot of stories, you know, uh, we've been around life long enough to know stories of people that work incredibly hard, but don't find what I would call excellence in their life. So I Mm -hmm. like to say hard work is necessary, but not sufficient. What else do we need besides hard work, Kumar? What else do we need to add to that? And and maybe you disagree with me, but. No, I I do agree with you. I I 100% agree with you because Hard work is necessary, but not sufficient. In fact, I use those words in the book. And, and, and it's the same with everything else. You know, we, we, we're all familiar with this 10,000 hour rule. Again, that's something that's necessary, but not sufficient. Or we've talked about grit. Again, that's something that's necessary, but not sufficient. So one of the things, one of the first things I, I tried to do was say that, okay, can, can we summarize what becoming exceptional is all about? Can we summarize uh, is there like a equation or a formula or something we can use? And and I came up with one based on the research I did and and shared it in the book. And basically, 50% of what it takes for someone to become exceptional at their field is what they're born with. You just have to be born in a certain way. And we've talked about this earlier uh, today. And that's not to say that, that's not to say that you should be discouraged. It's it, it is, to, you know, you can become good at anything, you know, through hard work, grit, perseverance, resilience, all these fantastic qualities, you can become good at anything. But if you want to become the best in the world, you've got to play to your strength. I can become good at basketball, but I can never become great just because I'm not born in a certain way. So half of what it takes to become exceptional is what you're born with. And you can thank your parents for that. The rest of it is what you develop. So of the remaining 50%, is what you just mentioned, Ron. It's hard work. It's the intense effort because no matter who you are, no matter how gifted you are, you need to put in that effort. And that's something I found, again, common across anyone who achieved anything meaningful. And the remaining 25% are a series of enablers that, again, are necessary. And without them, you just can't make it to the top of your field. And, and there's five of them. The first one is the environment you're in. The environment really influences and shapes you. If you're in a positive environment with the right set of people, the right set of, with the right community, with the right mindset, that's gonna help you. But the second thing is your belief in yourself. 
you really have to believe, you have to have the self-efficacy or the belief that, hey, you know, I can actually do this. I can have everything else. I can be as skilled as possible. I can be as hardworking as possible. But if I just don't think I can, you know, succeed, I'm not going to. The third thing is having, it's no one, absolutely no one has become exceptional alone. It's been a village. It's been a community. And it's, it's finding the right mentors, the support system, the colleagues. It's, it's, you know, I talk about an example of, you know, John Lennon, Paul McCartney were both in the outstanding musicians and songwriters individually, but collectively they were just something else. It's because they, they were able to bring out the best in each other. The fourth thing is, is what we just talked about, microexcellence. It's the ability to focus on the detail, uh, on the details. And the final element of excellence is, is the commitment you have to it. It is, uh, it's something I call not having a plan B. You know, what's the plan B? You know, plan B is something in theory that says, okay, I'm just going to really go all out and, and try to soar as high as I can in what I want to do. And if I can't achieve it, my plan B is the safety net that's going to hold me back. But that's what a plan B is in theory. But what ends up happening is that if you have a plan B, you never get committed to your plan A. Because, oh, you know, I, I don't have to become a great golfer. You know, I can, my family has a car dealership. I can go work there. You know, so it, it, it just, you know, not having that plan B again, or, the, or, or rather having that commitment is an essential requirement. So I know this is a long answer and, and it's probably too much to kind of take in all at once, but individually, every single thing is nice and necessary and makes sense, but it's not enough to make you exceptional. Collectively, it can make you a, an unbeatable powerhouse in whatever it is you do. Well, and I like that you're you're pointing out uh, when I asked you who your ideal reader is, you said uh, people looking to better themselves, but also parents. So you're saying, you know, age doesn't really matter, even though you you do say we need to put we need to have time to put in a lot of work here. Do you feel the same with social and uh, emotional learning? Do you think that's something that even though we're talking about teaching it to children, do you think it's something that adults? can also learn if they're trying to find their area of excellence? I think so. I think, I, I think there are programs for social and emotional learning for adults. I think, you know, we've talked about EQ for decades now. That is, in a, in a way, social and emotional learning for adults. And I think it's never too late. Yeah, it, it, it strikes me as, as kind of odd that I didn't know that term until I started doing some research and I noticed that it was being taught, you know, to younger children, but I don't see that, that word or that phrase used much for adults, but I, but I agree with you. I think emotional intelligence really fits into that to some degree. So I think we're doing it. Maybe we just don't call it that for adults, right. uh, which is, or, or maybe we're not doing it enough and that could, could all be, benefit from it. <laughs> that could be Kumar. I, I would agree completely. I think, most of us, including myself, could could stand to be a little bit better at that. So let me let me go back to, you know, you talk about this idea. One of the fascinating things to me is commitment. And you said, you know, don't have a plan B. I mean, if you have a plan B, then you're you're probably not a hundred percent committed, right? There's a there's a there's a kind of a I don't know famous saying out there is burn the boats, right? And and so once you land on shore, you, you burn the boat so you can't retreat. It, this was a, a story about an army that was was going to a, a foreign shore. Anyway, it's it's that idea is if we have a plan B, more than likely we're gonna we're gonna take it. We're gonna pull the ripcord, right? And mm -hmm. so 
we really got to be very clear on what that commitment is. And I like to say the harder the task, the, the stronger your commitment's going to be because it's going to really challenge you. Is there anything you would add to that? I mean, when we talk about this topic of commitment, I think you use a term also, something, I don't remember exactly the words you use, but something to keep yourself committed, a yeah. commitment mechanism or something like a, a that. A commitment device. Device. There uh, you go. Yeah. The commitment device is just something that keeps, you know, staying committed or working hard is hard. You know, we all want to work hard. We, we know we need to work hard. We know we need to stay committed. But sometimes it's just really hard to stay motivated. And even for the best of us, Michael Phelps, and this wasn't exactly a commitment device, but to him it was. I mean, he trained insanely hard, you know, for all those years. He was the greatest swimmer. He would I mean, his practice uh, sessions, if you research them, they're just insane. I mean, you just look at them and go, how does somebody do that? And even he would have a hard, have a hard time waking up in the morning for, for these intense sessions. But he had written down his goals on a piece of paper. And every time he woke up in the morning at four or five or whatever it was and had to go for a training session and didn't feel like going, he'd read that and that would that would motivate him. This is why I'm doing it. And, and once he reminded himself why he was doing it, it was easier for him to do it. But a commitment device is just anything that keeps you on track. It could be, it could be working with, with a trainer or a partner. It could be taking a $20 bill and putting it in a jar if you don't do something you're supposed to do. It could be, you know, tearing up your credit cards. It could be anything that just forces you to stay on a track. It could just a little thing. But as long as you're moving, as long as you're making progress, you're getting towards your goal. Well, Kamara, if people would like to learn more from you or work with you, what are some of the best ways that they can get in touch or, or how they can follow you? They can follow me on Twitter at MethaKumar or LinkedIn under my name, or just email me, Kumar at KumarMetha.com. And, uh, or just, just search for my name and it's easy to find my website and there's a form over there. So I'm, I'm easy to get a hold of. And as always, we will put all of that in the show notes so that it's nice and convenient for, for you to get a hold of, of Kumar if you would like to work with him. Kumar, let's, uh, let's go to our signature question to wrap this up. If you're comfortable, would you mind sharing with, with the listeners, what is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? So my greatest failure is a series of little things. It's doing things well enough but not outstanding. It's, it, and, and, and I've done that throughout my career. I've done things well enough to, to be reasonably successful, uh, but n- never become exceptional. So what I'm trying to do now is, is use my own lessons, put them in practice with my own life. So it's not a single thing, you know, I, I did A instead of B. I made, a, as we talked about earlier, I made a lot of different career changes, just going from one field to another. And any of them could have turned out to be failures, or I could talk about any of them as failures, but I think of all of them as a success. But in every single one of them, I've done well. I've done, you know, I'm happy with with the outcomes, but I don't think I really pushed myself to the limit. And if I had to do it all over again, if I had to go back 20 years or 30 years, I would probably ask more from myself. So if my If I had to summarize my failure, it would be I didn't ask enough for myself. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, 
Let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.